Welcome to this week's podcast, Building Blocks of the Indian Economy. I'm your host, Amar Meni. In previous weeks, we have explored many issues relating to India's physical infrastructure, particularly in transport and energy. Trains, planes, roads, mines, solar parks, wind farms, ports, ships, oil and gas. These are all the means to get our economy moving. But now I would like to change direction a little and turn to the things which sustain us. And to give you a hint as to where we will be going in the forthcoming episodes, I drew some inspiration from the old, now very old, Hindi film, Roti, Kapra or Makan, or Food, Clothing and Housing. The film was largely a Manoj Kumar production, and the title was likely taken from the phrase which Indra Gandhi had used on the campaign trail in the 1960s. And it neatly captures the basics of life, We all need food in our stomach, clothes on our body, and a roof over our head. So I will start with the roti, the food. But in order to produce roti, what farmers need is pani. They need water. Now before a global pandemic took our attention away, we were getting more and more worried about the prospects of massive water shortages in India. You might remember reports from Shimla of the taps running dry, and tourists having to be turned away from the hill station during high season for lack of water in the hotels. Likewise, at the other end of the country, businesses in Chennai were telling their employees to work from home, not to avoid a virus, but simply because the offices did not have any water supply. Their taps were running dry. For years, we heard of doomsday scenarios of India and the world being parched, and the wars of the future being fought over shrinking water supplies. You may think that India does not have enough water. Well, that would be wrong. We do have enough water. We just waste a lot of it. No doubt the population has multiplied since independence by about five times. Now, given that the country's water resources have remained around the same, that means that per head, each Indian has about five times less water than they used to at the time of independence. That does not sound great, but we as individuals in our homes, cleaning, drinking and bathing, do not really consume much of India's available water supply, perhaps just about 5%. Saving a bit of water at home, as noble as that would be, will not impact India's water supply very much. After households, another 10% might go to various commercial and industrial uses, such as coal mines and steel factories. Again, they are not the biggest consumers of water in India. 80% or more of India's water supply is consumed by the agriculture sector. Or, another way to think about it is that your daily water consumption is not just bathing, cleaning and drinking, but it is in the food you eat. All that food could only be made with a plentiful supply of water to the farms. That plate of food on your table contains a lot of water going back in the production process. Needless to say, if we want to understand India's water woes, we should look at how 80% or more of the water supply is being used in agriculture. The problem lies there, and so must the solution. Most of us will be familiar with the story of India's green revolution, High-yielding seeds, particularly wheat seeds of Japanese origin, 
which had been worked on by American scientists and successfully sown in Mexico, came to India via the Rockefeller Foundation in the mid-1960s. They were distributed by Indira Gandhi's government, most successfully in Haryana, Punjab, and western Uttar Pradesh. It was a success story for its time. It turned India's food scarcity, waiting for wheat from American ships each month, into an abundance within a few years. It established basic food security for India. Yet there was a very clear trade-off, which would take a couple of decades, at least, to become visible. See, those high-yielding seeds were very thirsty, and given the terrain they were being planted on, it made sense for farmers to dig wells on their small land holdings, lift that water through an electric pump, and essentially flood or drain their fields with that water. In Punjab, Haryana, and UP, subsidies for the tube wells and the electric pumps became entrenched, only providing an even greater incentive to the farmer to dig and pump, to dig and pump. Now, any farmer is free to pump as much and as deep on his land as he likes, and that is exactly what he did. It is a variant of what might be called the tragedy of the commons. Farmers have pumped more water from the land and could be replenished from natural rainfall. In addition, the new chemicals from fertilizers and pesticides were slowly poisoning the soil. So, we achieved food security, no doubt, but at the cost of stressing the water and the soil in the ground. But this flood irrigation concept was not new. The British had built a system of canals in western Punjab, now Pakistan, up around the Jhelum River, in the late 1800s. They were known as the canal colonies. And so taking in water from the canals, the farmers would flood their fields. But I'm sure as you could tell, just by the sound of it, this flood irrigation is not a very efficient use of water. In addition, this idea of a canal system of irrigation spread to other parts of the country. And whilst it did benefit the immediate region which the canal serviced, it essentially stopped the natural flow of the river water to the region just beyond where the canal system stopped. Now, after independence, our new constitution made water a state subject. Water? A state subject? I have to say I find this decision of the constitution makers quite puzzling. To the best of my knowledge, rivers do not stop at state borders, and neither do the rain clouds. And some states have plentiful water, whilst others have very little. And given that we are one nation, some distribution of water between the states would be inevitable. In my view, it has made one big problem into about 30 smaller and maybe more difficult problems. That is, the government of India in New Delhi, as much as it would like to, has relatively little power or capacity to solve India's water woes. The solutions have to be found in the state capitals. And that is where things get difficult. Because besides the problem of tube wells depleting the groundwater reserves and the wasteful practice of flood irrigation, there is the matter of the cropping patterns in the states and within regions within the states. The example of Punjab comes to mind. It is incredible that rice, one of the most water-intensive crops, is grown in Punjab. Have you ever met a rice-loving Punjabi? 
And why is sugarcane, another water guzzler, being grown in water-scarce regions of Maharashtra? Could it have something to do with the fact that politicians send water to the sugarcane growers who vote them back to power and also send the product to the politicians' own sugar mills? The list goes on and on and on across the country. Okay, so a lot of states have difficult politics and easy solutions do not seem to be in sight. But surely there must be some states which have responded to local needs and come up with innovative solutions? Well, yes, one does come to mind. Gujarat. Now, Gujarat is a semi-arid state and its topography does not allow for easy sinking of wells, like in Punjab and Haryana. At the start of this century, it was facing its own dire water crisis. The Narmada canal system, long in the making, became operational, feeding water through the canals, alleviating the shortage somewhat. But what really changed things was the then chief minister, Narendra Modi's holistic approach to the problem. He made water management a statewide and decentralized movement down to the village samiti or committee level. Locals increasingly took responsibility for water management and developed village level solutions, such as small check dams, which store rainwater rather than letting it run off and allow farmers months of productive use. Rather than flood irrigation, subsidies were given to increase the use of drip irrigation, dramatically decreasing the waste of water in irrigation. Homes, even village homes, in which women once had to walk to fetch water, now have piped water. I give this example because the obvious question arises, why has the now Prime Minister not been able to bring about a similar transformation nationwide over the past almost decade in power? Well, part of the answer lies in our constitution, our federal system of governance. The irony is that he has less power now over the subject of water as Prime Minister of India than he did when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat. So where might the solutions come from? I would suggest that it is not a hopeless situation. The solution will come when desperation meets technology. See, at the moment, a huge amount of water that runs through the taps and down the drain, be it in a home or a factory, ends up flowing into some nearby river, untreated. Much of the time it is that dirty river water mixed with sewage that people are drawing their drinking water from. Again, if the volume was not so great, it would be possible for that wastewater to get naturally cleaned by the river water. But just too much is being pumped in, and so our rivers get clogged and diseased. Indian towns and cities do have wastewater treatment plants, but these only treat about half, more or less, of such wastewater, and hardly any of that is reused. But the technology does now exist to recycle water rather than letting it just go down the drain. Singapore recycles a large percentage, close to half of its water, not always fit for drinking water, but certainly for industrial use. And Israel has been a world leader in both water recycling as well as drip irrigation. Again, this drip irrigation technology has been around for decades, but its penetration in Indian farming is just about 2-3%. to 3%. When desperation 
meets technology. Well, desperation in Gujarat did meet drip irrigation technology, remember? And just recently again, desperation in Chennai has met wastewater recycling technology. Chennai is now the only big city in India recycling wastewater on a mass scale, no doubt driven by its embarrassing water shortage from just before the pandemic, and assisted by Singaporean technology and management. The potential for a booming multi-billion dollar industry in water and irrigation technology does exist. But to attract private investment, first we would have to put a reasonable price on water, even if that price is subsidized by the government. Surely such a subsidy would be wiser than one for digging ever deeper tube wells or giving away free electricity to farmers. Will we have to wait one by one by one for our 28 states to get desperate enough to seize the technology available to start recycling water and drip our farms rather than flood them 